0: Everybody experiences heat differently based on assets that they may have. Just going from one end of Phoenix to the other, access is just tremendously different.
1: We're facing the battle of heat-related illnesses and deaths and COVID-related illnesses and deaths. And it's really kind of finding the balance between those two right now. People die on the streets every summer and it's devastating and it, it doesn't need to happen.
2: It's not just good enough to know how he is impacting people, but we need to empower people to say, look, we're not willing to have our city built this way. We need the trees. We need the shade. We need access to certain services. We need government-wide mechanisms for making sure that those voices are heard and infrastructure and programs and policies are built with those voices at the center.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. Right on the heels of record-breaking high temperatures in the Valley, we return with part two of our two-part discussion on heat in Arizona. Two weeks ago in part one, we sat in with high-level experts and researchers to understand the macro-level changes and impacts we are all experiencing. We also touched on some promising on-the-ground work, This week in part two, we're going directly to the micro ground level, touching base with leaders of 2 nonprofits and getting the perspective of how a city better connects with those most impacted by heat. As each of our guests shares their work, you'll feel the continued transforming presence of COVID-19. From emergency relief efforts to chronic heat issues, nothing escapes being impacted by coronavirus. As Arizona continues to be a hotspot for infection, don't forget to stay smart. Stay at home as much as you possibly can. Wash up. Mask up maintain social distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. We need to be in this together in order to get out of this together. We're going to serve up a lot of content and context over the next 30 minutes, so buckle up. It's time to talk about heat, relief, shelter, air conditioning, trees and shade, buildings, pavement, planning, and policy as we emerge from our first heat emergency of 2020. We have three incredible people who are doing amazing work on the ground during our heat crisis here in the Phoenix metro region. First off, we have Eva Olivas from Phoenix Revitalization Corporation. Eva, how are you?
0: I'm fine. Thank you.
3: Thank you for joining us. Braden Kay, Sustainability Director for the City of Tempe. How are you?
2: Hey, John. Good to be here.
3: Glad to have you. And Danielle McMahon, Director of Food Services at St. Vincent de Paul. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you for having me.
3: Thank you for being here. Let's get to it. Eva, I'm going to start with you. It was a really super hot weekend last weekend. What was the work like for you at Phoenix Revitalization Corporation, and what are you thinking about as you go forward this summer?
0: Probably the most critical thing is how do we inform people at a time with the virus going on right now, We have, for the past 10 years, had a small heat mitigation program where we had done community outreach to 22 different sites, just reminding people about some simple basics Don't leave kids in the car. Don't leave dogs in the car. Don't leave food in the car. Check on vulnerable neighbors. We didn't get to do that this year. A lot of times it's out of of mind. One of the concerns that we have also is that I am a native Phoenician and I can tell you, heat today is not like heat when I was 10 years old. And so it just feels a lot different. In our program, we actually wanted people not to be comfortable and relaxed in this Arizona heat and say, oh, I'm a native, I've been here, I can handle it, because it's just different, it's much hotter. And there are a lot of things that influence that heat now that weren't around when I was 10 years old. There's a lot more concrete, there's a lot more buildings, a lot more that contributes to elevating the heat. It's really trying to get the word out at the grassroots level to the people who really don't have a lot of options on how to mitigate the heat. The one thing that we get every summer are calls from low-income families because they have either substandard or no cooling system. So it's how do we get them connected to very limited resources in order to survive the summer.
3: And you know, it was pointed out in part one of our heat discussion that lots of people also have functioning air conditioning but can't actually afford to have it on
0: hmm We have people that have a window unit, eight or nine people sit in that room all day in their home because they can't afford to have the full unit, so they have to settle for trying to stay in that one room. You can imagine that right now with the virus, that is just extremely, extremely difficult. Even with assistance from either the city or the county or whoever for AC units or cooling systems, we have people who live in mobile homes and a lot of the programs don't allow repairs or services for mobile home units.
3: Braden, Eva brought it up. A lot more concrete, a lot more built environment as the City of Tempe sustainability director. And you're thinking about heat and urban heat island effect. What keeps you up at night?
2: Just like Eva described the transition from when she was 10 to what we have today, we need to be thinking about what the next, 30 or 40 years, is going to look like. The challenge with our region is we haven't been changing our behavior. We continue to build the same parking lots, use the same asphalt in our streets, use the same building materials for our buildings. If you think about my city where we're building glass buildings along an artificial lake, those buildings in our built environment is not ready to be turned into Baghdad or Riyadh which is where we're heading. We're not used to having the amount of over 100-degree days that we're going to be having. We're not used to seeing the 120-degree days. We basically see a 120-degree day every few years here, whereas some of the ASU projections are showing that we could have over 40 days a summer over 120. If that's the reality that we're charging towards, we need to be building our cities differently. And that's what keeps me up at night is that Codes are not changing the way they need to be changing. We're not incentivizing and working with the development community to change the way we're building our environment. I'm really excited about some of the things we're experimenting with in Tempe in terms of understanding how heat impacts people's health and how our infrastructure can change to create a cooler place. And the nature's cooling systems work that Eva and the Nature Conservancy have been a part of are great, but we have to have a lot more political energy put towards changing the way we're building our cities. Otherwise, this is going to be a very, very uncomfortable place to live in the 2050s and 2060s.
3: Danielle, there's two sides to this equation. There's some of the longer term things that Braden just mentioned, and then there's the more immediate, like what happened last weekend. When it came to the work that you were doing at St. Vincent de Paul as temperatures were at 116, 117, what did that work look like and how will it look going into the future?
1: at St. Vincent de Paul, we do a lot of work with unsheltered individuals and people experiencing homelessness. So we have five sites all throughout Maricopa County, and we do our best to extend hours at those locations so that individuals can come and receive relief from the heat. That looks different this year because of the COVID virus that's been spreading. So we are have limited numbers and limited capacity of what we can do as far as getting people inside. We've put in some work this summer to extend relief outside with shade and misters and portable cooling units. And it's helped. It's not the same, but it has helped. Last weekend, we made the call also to expand hours for our outreach team. So we sent them out last weekend with those 117 degree days to hand out water to individuals and encampments as well. The virus has made heat relief extremely difficult. It's never an easy thing to do, but because we can't fit 200 people inside of a building right now, we're limiting it to 46 people. That's a lot less. The county and city has put in some work thankfully as well to extend relief services at the phoenix convention center at our dining room at the human services campus in downtown phoenix we shelter 80 individuals overnight for four months every summer typically again that's 275 people but now it's only 80 this year heat relief will continue all through the summer hopefully it can look a little bit different next summer and we're able to open up those capacities again but Right now, we're facing the battle of heat-related illnesses and deaths and COVID-related illnesses and deaths, and it's really kind of finding the balance between those two right now. Every summer, too, I mean, it's a lot of water, unsheltered individuals that don't have access to running water to keep them hydrated. People die on the streets every summer, and it's devastating, and it, it doesn't need to happen. Communities partner with us to provide water and funding for expanded hours. We've been doing that since the beginning of June. We will do that through the end of September, at least.
3: Eva, you have heard already a couple of times the mention of Nature's Cooling Systems. Take us back to the beginning of what Nature's Cooling Systems is What it has done and what it has shown us about the future of heat in our region.
0: We were approached by the Nature's Conservancy for several reasons, but the primary reason is that most of PRC's work, Phoenix Revitalization's work, is at a very grassroots level. And they really wanted to know what was the impact of the heat on people who were in the areas where the heat is most intense. And so What we did was we had community meetings with about 80 residents come in for a couple. We had, I think 25, 30 in for another one. But we had these convenings where we really explained what heat was and how to get some data about the heat. And then we really wanted to know what they were doing. What are you currently doing to mitigate heat? What are the types of steps you do every time Summer comes in order to protect yourself from the heat. And it was really very interesting because it was everything from, we reschedule our appointments so that we try to do everything at one time. We work with neighborhoods that are very transit dependent on public systems. Going to the bus stop where the benches are metal, is really challenging. So they, so they try to make early appointments, sometimes they try to group together in order to get a ride to the grocery store, and sometimes they order out which they can't afford to do because it's just too intensely hot for them to go out. They're not eating as healthy, they're not socializing as much because there are not either locations close to them, or it's just too hot to get to the front door, much less outside. So it was really interesting to see the types of things that they came up with. Simple things like a lot of people in Arizona have never really used an umbrella other than for rain occasionally. We really talked a lot about how an umbrella could really bring a different level of coolness to you. It was helping them understand the types of things that they do that they didn't connect the dots to mitigating heat we were able to compile all this information and produce a document that was a guide for the developers everything from wanting to understand what the pathways were the walkways what were some of the cooling systems they could bring in and i'll give you an example there was a park that had a water feature that actually was not even operable There is no pool in this area, so having that water feature work was pretty critical. And they were able to advocate to have that repaired and running all the time, which is doing now. So that was very helpful for some of the kids in the neighborhood. We were also able to share our findings with the developer of the project and the city to see you know, what were the trees that could be used, what were the shading features that could be used, what public art could be combined with providing shading. So there were many suggestions that were made for the document that we were able to produce.
3: So really an all hands on deck kind of solution then, it was a combination of knowing what the coping strategies were, knowing what could be longer term solutions and combining those with some really creative approaches and insights directly from residents. Yeah,
0: I think one of the most important thing though is really how we could influence the housing project to take a look at those ideas and include them in the design. So we were very excited when they called us and specifically had a one-on-one conversation with the developers and not only my team, but residents to be able to explain their thoughts about what this meant and how they were experiencing this corner. One of the simplest things they talked about, demonstration sites, the residents identified was that when the kids get picked up at the bus stops, there's literally no shade at these bus stop areas for when they stand there and wait for the bus or when the parents come to wait for the bus to come back. Nobody even thought about having shading structures there. The fact that the residents were very interested in having art be incorporated into the shade structures in this particular community, having trees would be an extremely welcome project, but a lot of our residents can't afford the water. So we're real excited to be able to talk to the developers and be able to influence design.
3: Speaking of developers, Braden, how do you think about this type of work from a city perspective? Talk about some of your favorite projects related to heat and also about temporary equity in action.
2: So cities really have the responsibility of figuring out how to center people in this work. And that's why the work that we're hearing about from Danielle and Eva is so important is that often most vulnerable populations are the ones that are most affected by heat. And those are people in cities that are often not articulated in the conversation around how infrastructure gets built, where and how cooling centers are placed. Cities really need to figure out new ways of incorporating resident voice and bringing people into the decision-making process that aren't always there. And so that's really what we've been trying to do in our sustainability work and in our heat work. In our heat work, one of the things we're really excited about is this work that was just funded by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Pew Charitable Trust. It's part of a program they call the Health Impact Project. And what we did with that funding was we worked with ASU professors specifically to take people-centered heat data, they actually have a little heat robot called Marty run by Dr. Ariane Medell. And we take Marty to playgrounds and bike paths and parks and street sides to right-of-ways to understand what it's actually like to experience heat in those places. Some of the same professors worked with the Nature Cooling System Project and they've innovated this idea called a heat walk where neighbors actually walk with Marty to understand what is happening in terms of how they're experiencing heat. And one of the things that we know is that we often use surface temperature to understand heat, and that's actually not a people-centered way of understanding heat. So what Marty stands for is Medient Radiant Temperature, which is a combination of radiation, like the energy coming off the sun, wind, humidity, and the surface temperature. And really what we need to be understanding is the types of trees we plant, as Eva suggested, the types of shade we're using, the way we're orienting in their buildings can all affect median radiant temperature and actually create much cooler experienced places by choosing the right types of landscape design and building design. And so we were really excited. We picked four types of infrastructure to try to influence how we have designed our playgrounds, what materials we use. Same with bike paths parking lots, using this people-centered data approach. Now, the other thing that we've done is it's not just good enough to have people-centered data, but you need decision-making mechanisms that are different. So we've partnered with the Vitalist Health Foundation on a program called Equity in Action that's modeled off of work in Providence, Rhode Island, and Portland, Oregon, and Fort Collins, and a few other places that are paying community members to be experts. And so we've created a coalition. Then we've done this in partnership with All Voices Consulting, which is a partner of Vitalist. And we are doing deep racial equity work with a group of city staff and a group of social justice leaders and neighborhood leaders that we're paying over a three year period to really figure out how can we as a city do better engagement How do we bring the right voices to the table when we redesign a park or when we redesign cooling centers or when we create new policing policy? I'm really excited about that innovation. We're the first city in Arizona to do that kind of people first, equitable government engagement kind of pilot project. And we're starting to hear from other cities that are interested in that, too, because it's not just good enough to know how he is impacting people, but we need to empower people to say, look, we're not willing to have our city built this way. We need the trees, we need the shade, we need access to certain services. We need government-wide mechanisms for making sure that those voices are heard and infrastructure and programs and policies are built with those voices at the center.
3: This is not small work. I mean, you just talked about five different layers of the work. Now I'll just try to rewind a couple of things. You talked about the overlapping effects of different choices that are made in the inbuilt environment. Uh, Dave Hondula in the last episode talked about the fact that when they experimented with so-called cooling pavement, it turned out to be reflective pavement, and that actually created more radiant heat. And so they're not really sure that that's necessarily a good choice. Talked a little bit more about some of those interrelationships and how you manage those from a radiant heat perspective. And then also, if you would, let's talk more deeply about why it's important to be doing racial equity work when we're talking about heat.
2: One thing we're understanding about heat data, just to sort of take a step up, is one, we need to understand how heat works in our cities. Because that's going to understand where we need to make heat investments, where we need to place things. So we need macro heat data, understanding the hot zones and cool zones of our whole city to make decisions as to where cooling infrastructure should go. And so that's one thing we've been working on with Dave Hondula. Then there's the micro level, the very small scale level. And you're absolutely right. One of the challenges with certain cooling infrastructure is that it's good for some things and not others. Los Angeles has gotten very famous for painting their streets white. Painting your streets white makes the nighttime temperature in that area not quite as hot because the asphalt isn't retaining as much heat and then casting it off at night. So that makes it cooler, but it's not cooler to experience walking across it at four in the afternoon because of that radiation effect. And so Part of the challenge is we don't have silver bullet material solutions to a lot of our cooling challenge. The closest thing to a silver bullet is planting trees and vegetation wherever you can. But when you have to build streets or you have to build bus stops, we're stuck with certain materials and you have to make choices about whether you want it to be good at night or whether you want it to be a little bit cooler during the day as an actual experience walking by it. And there's definitely trade-offs involved. The reason that we need to be focused on race anytime that we talk about climate change and anything having to do with the environment is because people of color tend to be at the front line of this work. So in the work Eva does, she's been working on this for a long time to make sure that people of color's voices are heard in Phoenix. It's that type of work that's really important because many communities of color are the ones that are experiencing the most heat fatigue, have lack of access to transportation, or experiencing the most transportation challenges due to heat. So therefore, if you're not doing that deep racial equity work, then you're not really getting to the root causes of who is not thriving in your city, whether it's due to heat or other circumstances, and therefore how to fix it.
0: We really think it's important to empower the community to have them recognize that they have to be the one and looking out for opportunities to make change happen. Once we had completed the Nature's Cooling System Project, the next thing we talked about was how do we really educate people at a grassroots level to understand what heat mitigation is, not to just live it every day. And we wanted to connect the dots between this is really an issue and here are the things that you can do. You know, this is a very technical field, and so we were very fortunate that we had some great scientists come in and really be willing to listen to us when we said, okay, we're going to have this conversation with residents and they're not going to understand a thing you're saying. (laughs) So how do we translate the language in a very understandable way to grassroots residents so they can start advocating for themselves? that they start recognizing what are the things that are harmful, what are the things that are beneficial, and that they can start advocating for those changes to occur or those changes to be added. We were very excited when the Urban Heat Leadership Academy was a project we could work on with the Nature Conservancy, but not only that, but that we were hoping to create a network of informed residents throughout the valley. So they could not only have access to great information from scientists, but they would also have a network of support with each other.
3: Well, and this is one of the keys of the Urban Heat Leadership Academy, right? While it is true that a whole bunch of people might be sitting around that room talking technically, they also are getting their eyes opened by the members of that academy who are helping them understand the realities of daily life with heat
0: yes everybody experiences heat differently based on assets that they may have and so we felt that it was just really critical that they're connected to each other even just within phoenix just going from one end of phoenix to the other access is just tremendously different when you're in a community where a family of four lives on 20000 a year, then if you are talking about a family, their income is 200000 a year. They're certainly going to have not only an AC system, but they're going to be able to repair it when it breaks. Access to what is most important to us is critical. The academy is really about how do we inform people, how do we connect people, how do we give them resources so they can really do something on an individual base, on a neighborhood base, and on a community base. And then how do we hold our systems accountable to support those changes, how do we go to the planning department and say, look, this developer's coming in here and he wants to build this, but there are no trees, there's no landscaping, there's no walkability here. Yeah, you're building a 200-unit facility that nobody we work with can afford to be in, but the least you can do is make the pathway from here to here uh, walkable so that it makes it healthier, safer for residents of all the neighborhoods to be part of.
3: And what is the response when you ask for that?
0: I have to say the City Housing Department in particular, I serve on the Central Village Planning Committee, so I'm always talking about what types of things is the developer gonna give to the community that will improve the community, the conditions in the community, the connection for the community. So these are always questions that I'm asking as a member of the Central Village Planning Committee. The Housing Department has been very receptive to the comments that were made in the Nature's Cooling System Guide and again picking the right developer for a project is really important i always talk about community beneficial building (laughs) not only does the developer the investors the owner benefit but the community benefits from their presence and so these are things that we're always pushing for sometimes people will listen and sometimes they don't but our hope is that we evolve into a very responsible building in Phoenix.
3: We're talking about something that benefits the people in the $200,000 unit and the people who are also in that community who aren't living in that unit.
0: Correct. The natural environment that is in every neighborhood benefits everybody. They have a shared responsibility to make the common areas be good for all.
3: Danielle, you're on the daily front lines of what's going on at St. Vincent de Paul. What are some of the things that you as an organization do besides immediate relief that mesh with some of the projects that we're talking about here related to long-term changes in the community related to heat?
1: Right now, we're seeing a lot of expansion in shelter. Kind of plus side of the pandemic is that funds have been put into sheltering unsheltered individuals in different hotels and motels through different contracts with various cities in the county long term. I know St. Mitz de Paul and other organizations and community members are talking about how we can expand upon shelter. We work with people that don't even hit the $20,000 income level. Their means to stay out of the heat are dependent on different community resources while they figure out what their next step is towards ending their homelessness. We're really trying to work with other nonprofit agencies, the government sector and community members on how we can offer those resources long-term and in a bigger way. We're one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And with that, we will continue to see, unfortunately, more homelessness happen. So we need to get ahead of that and work towards finding solutions. There's no reason for people to die on the streets in the summertime in Phoenix. And we really need to work together to prevent that There's ways to do it and it takes all of us on this call to be a part of it, to make it possible for sure. We also at St. de Paul do a lot of prevention of homelessness as well. So low-income families or single individuals can come to St. de Paul and receive eviction prevention as well. A lot of families and individuals end up homeless because a crisis has happened and it prevents them from working or from paying that next bill. And they end up on the streets in our community And they're our neighbors, they're family members. So we really need to work towards just creating sustainable environments for all income levels in our communities.
3: Danielle, you brought up eviction. And during COVID, we've had up until now an eviction moratorium, but that moratorium is set to expire. What are you thinking about related to that expiration date and how St. Vincent-
0: I'd like them to live that also.
3: Thank you, Danielle, thank you, Braden, and thank you, Eva. We just barely had enough time together to begin what needs to become a much deeper and broader set of actions to address heat in Arizona. And although today's discussion focused on the 117-degree Valley of the Sun, those actions are needed from Yuma to Flagstaff, from Dilcon to Bisbee, from Clifton to Kingman, and throughout the state of Arizona. And as each of you pointed out, the conversation cannot continue without concerted effort to center those most impacted. And as we said in part one of this two-part series, the notion that heat does not discriminate is filled with implicit bias and denial because climate and heat does disproportionately impact the most vulnerable, which means income, gender identity, and race are again root determinants of community health and well-being as temperatures rise. Once again, be smart out there wherever you are. Stay at home as much as you can. Remember to isolate if you don't feel well. Wash your hands. Maintain social distance whenever you can. And when you can't, mask up, AZ. My mask protects you, your mask protects me. Hashtag mask up, AZ. Our COVID-19 roundtable returns next week. We'll dive back into the numbers and look at the vaccine picture as it starts to come into focus with the latest clinical trials. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Whether the topic is food, affordable housing, the census, the art and practice of storytelling, first responders, or heat, the Vitalist Spark has got you covered with great guests, insightful content, and probably one or two bad jokes. There's so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our three dozen episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or, listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they're all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.